I thought we'd start this morning with a bit of Julie Andrews. Can you imagine the scene? Julie Andrews on that bus, arriving at the Von Trapp family house. This is a woman who needed some confidence. Seven children, unruly children, awaited her, and she needed all the help she could get. Those words, I have confidence in me. We all know that self-confidence is a valuable attribute. We need it in our daily lives and in the various roles we play, whether we have seven children in front of us or not. We want it for our children too, self-confidence. I was just thinking this week I dropped Sam off at a rehearsal at a venue he'd never been to before. Parking wasn't possible. I had to drop him off and I say, look, go in, it'll be fine. And that took self-confidence on his part. And so we want it for our children. I'm not trying to do down self-confidence in anything I say this morning crumbs. I recognise that I have a level of self-confidence myself. But I am going to give a warning today, and that's this, that from a spiritual perspective, self-confidence, that is confidence in our own strengths and abilities, can be very, very dangerous. I'm going to suggest that it actually can take us down the very opposite route to the one that God wants us to go down. Now, I'm not saying that because I happen to think it or because it's pleasant to consider this, but because I think that is the message that is the heart of our passage this morning from Luke chapter 18. And it's a message we'll do well to listen to because we will only hear that message here. We will not come across it in the media. We will not see it on Twitter or Facebook. Indeed, the message this morning from the Bible challenges one of the most sacred of sacred cows in our society today which is that you are okay just as you are. I'm going to challenge that today. But it doesn't only give us a challenge. It also gives us an encouragement. Indeed, the place where we'll end up this morning is going to be reminding us of the best news ever, which is the good news of God in Jesus Christ. Just a reminder of the story so far in Luke's Gospel. We started before Christmas looking at the birth of Jesus, And since Lent, we've been tracking Jesus' last journey down from Galilee to Jerusalem. And on this journey, Jesus shared, has been sharing a number of teachings and parables, often aimed at those with power, either religious or material. And we've seen, haven't we, that Jesus often uses contrasting figures to make his point. The two sons, do you remember? Or, Or the rich man and Lazarus from last week. 
And so and he does it in exactly that way in our passage today. In fact, you'll see on the batting order that you've got in your service sheet, I'm suggesting that we see there are two sets of contrasts in our Bible reading today between the Pharisee and the tax collector on the one hand and between the children and rich ruler on the other. So what you're going to see is as you look at the batting order, I'm just going to suggest that we look at them each in turn. And I'm going to draw out some lessons for us today as we think about three questions for us all. So first of all, turn with me if you can in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. It's on page 1052. There are Bibles just in the seats in front of you. Page 1052. We're going to look first of all at self-confidence versus humility. The Pharisee and the tax collector, verses 9 to 14. And the first thing I want to notice is Jesus' intended audience for the parable. Look with me at verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. (laughs) Does this sound familiar at all? These type of people, they've been in Jesus' audience before. They don't seem to have been scared off by what he said. Do you remember back in Luke chapter 15, there were two types of people in the crowd? There were the sinners and the tax collectors, and then there were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law looking in, or rather looking down on them. Uh, It seems to be that it's the likes of the Pharisees that Jesus has in view again here. They clearly haven't pushed off. They're clearly still around, and Jesus has them in view as he tells this parable. It's not surprising, therefore, that the first person we meet in this parable is a Pharisee himself. And praying in the temple in Jerusalem, this Pharisee cuts an impressive figure. We can imagine him praying loudly, standing proud, addressing God in confident and sonorous tones. But why is the Pharisee so confident? Let's look at his prayer in verses 11 and 12. God, I thank you I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Why is he so confident? Because he's comparing himself to others. That's what basically is going on in this prayer. Actually, it's not really a prayer at all. It it starts with the word God, but it's basically a comparison statement. This man's operating on an entirely horizontal level. He's looking round, both metaphorically and physically, and comparing himself to others. And compared to the robbers, the adulterers, the evildoers, and the tax collectors, he sees himself as doing rather well. His external religious observance far outstrips theirs. And so compared to others, he's up there. All of which fires his confidence, his pride and his heart. He doesn't need anything from God. He's fine as he is. He's at the top of the tree compared to everyone else. The tax collector is a contrasting figure. There's no pride in him. His location, far off. His body language, beating his breast. All speak of him being in a very different place, a place of humility. And why is he humble? Let's look at his prayer in verse 13. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. 
You see, unlike the Pharisee, he's comparing himself to God and not others. Other people do not get a look in on his prayer. His prayer is upwards. It's a vertical prayer, not a horizontal prayer. And he knows that compared to God, he's a sinner. He has fallen short of God's standards, and so he really needs something. He really needs mercy. He needs forgiveness. He needs a new start. Now the punchline, and it does have a punch to it. Verse 14, I tell you that this man, says Jesus, rather than the other went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Justified before God is a bit of a kind of theological term. It means basically in a right relationship with God. Jesus says the tax collector has it, but the Pharisee doesn't. That would have been a terrible shock to Jesus' audience. If any group was going to be in a right relationship with God, it was the Pharisees. I mean, they kept all the rules. And the tax collectors, well, they were beyond the pale already. Before they got up in the mornings, they were out of relationship with God. But Jesus says that being in a right relationship with God is not about those sort of things. It's about our attitude to God. Self-confidence, such as the Pharisee exhibits, that's the route to being out of a relationship with God. The confidence of the Pharisee is misplaced. But humility, such as the tax collector models, that's the route to being in a relationship with God. Humility, the tax collector, has won over self-confidence from the Pharisee. So let's hold those thoughts as we look at the second contrast between the children and the rich ruler. Luke said at the beginning of the gospel that he was going to write an orderly account. And I've no doubt that he groups these stories together to bring out exactly the contrasts that we're looking at. In this story, the, the, the humility comes first in the shape of Jesus' encounter with the little children in verses 15 to 17. I think, by the way, it's possible to be somewhat over-sentimental in our understanding of this encounter, partly because we view it like we view all Bible passages through our own contemporary lens. And the way we see children today in our society is to see them as cute and lovely. I think actually having children modifies that perspective somewhat. But um, (laughs) anyway, just modifies it rather than ruins it. But the lens still holds... Uh, And so we think that Jesus wanted children to come to him because he thought they were sweet. But I don't think that's what's going on at all. For one thing, at the time of Jesus, children were not regarded as sweet. In fact, they were not really regarded at all. They just weren't important in social life. It wasn't until you reached over the ages of 11 or 12 that you started to matter in social intercourse. But that's really the key Jesus is not saying that children are an example because they're sweet and innocent. He's saying that they're an example because they are humble. You see, no child back then would have thought themselves worthy of addressing an adult they didn't know, especially a rabbi like Jesus. They had nothing that made them deserving of attention. They came, they knew, with empty hands. And they were humble. 
And that's the lesson that Jesus is seeking to bring out. Coming to God or receiving the kingdom, to use the terminology from this story, is not about coming with what we think we deserve, being self-confident, but being aware of what we need, being humble. That's what the children were getting right. They were not presuming, they were not assuming, they were not deserving. They were coming as they are, low expectation, but with a humble heart. And that's what many adults were getting wrong. And one such adult is on the way. He's the rich ruler. You can feel the self-confidence in this rich ruler from his opening question. Look with me at verse 18. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I do. It's in his grasp, he thinks. There's a lot going on, by the way, in this exchange between the rich ruler and Jesus. More than I can go to in detail, but I just want to track the marks of the self-confidence in this man's approach. You see, just like the Pharisee, he is very confident in his moral compliance. Feel that confidence behind that answer in verse 21 when Jesus asked me if he's kept some of the commandments. All these I've kept since I was a boy. This is a man whose moral slate is clean, or so he thinks. But actually, he's boasting in the commandments without really reflecting on what the commandments mean. He's using them as a checklist instead of a call to a deep commitment to God. A reason for self-confidence rather than a motivation to humility. And so Jesus wants to kind of puncture this self-confident bubble that he sees in front of him. And he puts his finger on what the man really trusts in, which is his own wealth. And hence his call in verse 22 to just get rid of it. You see, what the wealth has done to this man is this, is it's changed his heart. It has made him believe that he can do anything himself. Click his fingers and he can have it. Eternal life, that's something within his grasp. He can be confident in his capacity to get that. His heart doesn't get asking for mercy or showing humility. He's never done that. And while he's got all this money swishing around him, Jesus knows he'll never ask for mercy because he'll never recognize he's in need. And that's what drives Jesus' words about the rich in verses 24 and 25 when he says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's not that Jesus is against the money per se, but Jesus knows what money does to people's hearts. He knows that people with money find it really, really hard to be humble. They find it hard to say sorry and they find it hard to ask for mercy. They think that entering the kingdom of God is something they achieve rather than receive. And you can feel, therefore, the shock in the words of the disciples. Verse 26, who then can be saved? They've just seen one man come before them who looks incredibly blessed by God, money coming out of his ears. But he walks away without a relationship with God. His confidence in himself was misplaced and he was unable to ask for what he really needed. And they say, if money doesn't get you in, what, what does? 
We'll pick up Jesus' answer in a moment. But let's look at what we've seen so far. We've seen two examples of self-confidence, the Pharisee and the rich ruler. And they're both shown to have their confidence misplaced. Their self-confidence has moved them away from a meaningful relationship with God. But we've also seen two examples of humility, the tax collector and the children, who receive a relationship with God based not on their own achievement, but an understanding of their own empty hands and their need of God, in short, their humility. Now, if I did a straw poll now on which one should we be more more like, I don't think it would be a terribly kind of split vote. I think we all kind of know we need to be over there rather than over here. Yeah? So self-confidence, generally not a brilliant thing. Humility, generally a good thing. But I think I want to go a bit deeper than that this morning, if that's okay. Because I think otherwise, if we kind of just end up with that sort of, yeah, I know which one's the best one, we can end up praying a prayer that goes something like this. Lord, thank you that I am humble, not like that Pharisee over there. And I can't help feeling that rather misses the point. I actually want to look at what it means to pursue humility rather than self-confidence by asking us three questions for us all to think about this together this morning, okay? The question number one is this. Who do we compare ourselves to, others or God? Who do we compare ourselves to? Let's face it, it's not just the Pharisee who compares himself to others. That's what he was doing, wasn't it? I thank you, I'm not like so-and-so. We all do it. How does my house match up to others? What about my clothes, or my car, or my job, or my body, or my children? One of the reasons I find synod and conferences hard is because I go into comparison overload. Do I speak as well as that person? Is my church doing as well? I'm not proud to share that with you, but I want to recognise it affects us all. Perhaps for you, comparison mainly takes place in the workplace, or the gym, or at dinner parties. Hard as I find it to shake the habit, I know that comparison with others is a cul-de-sac. It either leads to feelings of pride, like it did to the Pharisee, at least I'm better than so-and-so, or not as bad as why, or it leads to feelings of despair. I'll never be as good as A. I'll never succeed like B. But I don't think either of those feelings are of God. I think we're moved, I think we're called to move away from this horizontal comparing and move to vertical comparing. From comparing ourselves with others to comparing ourselves with God. That is what the tax collector did. And that's what we're called to do too. And if you remember, when the tax collector compared himself with God, he knew he fell short. Before a a holy God, pure, righteous and just, he recognised himself to be someone who'd missed the mark. He was a sinner. I often find Isaiah 6 really helpful when thinking about this. And perhaps I could ask you to turn with me to it. It's on page 690 in your Bibles. It's just one of the really clear points in the Old Testament where the holiness of God leads to an understanding of human responsibility. It's a, it's a picture 
page 690, Isaiah 6. It's a picture of the vision that Isaiah has of God in glory. Don't get worried too much about the numbers and wings and angels and stuff like that. Just, just capture the vision. Do you see what I mean? In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered with faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. This is a picture of God who is just awe-inspiring in his beauty and holiness. And look at Isaiah's response, verse 5. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He recognizes Isaiah that in the face of a holy God before whom he's comparing himself to, he's a sinner. You can turn back to Luke now, uh, because that's the sort of journey that you and I are called to make as well. To recognize that before a holy God, before whom I'm comparing myself, I have fallen short. That like God's creation, I am both beautiful but broken. Beautiful because I am made in the image of God, but broken in my selfishness, in my desires, in my anger, in my lust, in my worldliness. Like the children, I bring nothing in my hand that means God really ought to love me. Indeed, what I bring is just a recognition that I am a sinner. So who do we compare ourselves to? Ranking ourselves along others, that will only lead us away from God. It did to the Pharisee. Comparing ourselves to God, though, that will make us more aware of our sin. But as the tax collector shows, that is a vital first step. It's not the end of the journey. It's not the good news. But it's the first step to finding out what the good news is. Who do we compare ourselves to? Question number two is, what do we ask for? It's striking that neither the Pharisee nor the rich ruler really asked for anything. They either thought they had it already, in the case of the Pharisee, or that they could get what they needed themselves, in the case of the rich ruler. But they certainly didn't need anything from God. Which makes the example of the tax collector such a strong one. Recognizing his own sin, he knows he needs one thing. He needs mercy. He needs mercy. He needs forgiveness for his sin. Because I think, and that is vital that we hear that lesson. Because our world values personal independence so highly, we find it really hard to hear this truth, but we need to hear it. We are not okay as we are. We are not okay just as we are. We are sinners who badly need mercy from God. And the richer we are, the more clearly we need to hear that. Because like the rich ruler, the richer you are, the harder it is to recognize that you are in need of something that money cannot buy. One commentator writes on these verses, the affluent 
do not find it easy to cast themselves on the mercy of God. They see it as a more kind of negotiated arrangement. But actually, this isn't something we negotiate with God. This is something where we fall on his mercy. That's exactly what we're called to do. Ask God for mercy and to do it regularly. J.C. Ryle, a wonderful Victorian bishop, comments on these verses. Mercy and grace must be the subject of our daily petitions at the throne of grace till the day we die. I've written about this in the small group notes for this session, but one thing I find really helpful is a prayer called the Jesus Prayer. It comes from the Orthodox Church, or from the Eastern Church, and is based on this prayer, the prayer of the tax collector, and it goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's designed to be used as a breath prayer, so you breathe in in the first phrase and breathe out on the second. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's designed to be said a number of times, uh, as a preparation for coming into God's presence. I try and say it every day, three or four times, just reminding me that I am a sinner in need of mercy. And I find it reminds me of who I really am, what I really need, and it keeps prideful self-confidence at bay. And I need to say to everyone here today, however competent you may be, However highly paid you are or highly regarded you are by others, you need mercy from God. Like the tax collector, you're in his shoes. So who are we comparing ourselves to? Others or are we comparing ourselves to God? What are we asking for? Mercy that we all need. And the third question is what are we hoping for? Because it struck me as I was reflecting again on the Pharisee and the rich ruler, is they weren't really hoping for anything. They thought they had it all already. The Pharisee had his moral superiority and his social status, and the rich ruler had both of them and shed loads of cash as well. Their rewards, you see, well, they were all around them. People who looked up to them, servants who did as they were told, they had nothing more to receive. But the tax collector and the children, they were looking for more. They came with empty hands, yes, but empty hands that could receive. They were open to a new encounter with God based not on their own merits, but on God's mercy and grace. You see, their humility was a humility of hope. And our humility can be the same. Because the wonderful news of the Christian faith is that when we come to God in humility, recognizing ourselves as sinners, asking for mercy, we do not find him turning us away. We find instead that he gives us more than we ever thought possible. We find him giving us his son Jesus to die in our place, taking on him our sins so that we could be forgiven. We find him adopting us into his family forever, sealing us with the Holy Spirit and bringing God's love into our hearts. We find him working through us, even though we, we don't even feel qualified. 
And we find him promising an eternal home with him, a home that will not perish, spoil or fade. All this is made possible by God and his grace. That is why Jesus said to his disciples, what is impossible with men is possible with God. You cannot buy this. You cannot be good enough for it. But it comes through God's grace when we come to him in humility, asking for mercy. I found a great quote this week that sums it up. God is not only more demanding than people care to think, but also more generous than they dare to hope. God is not only more demanding than people care to think, but also more generous than they dare to hope. If we are hoping simply for more status or more stuff, we're going to end up disappointed. But if what we are hoping for as we come with open hands is a discovery afresh of the depths of God's love and God's grace, then we can hope away. Because when we come to, in humility to the throne of grace, that is exactly what we will find. Who are we comparing ourselves to? I pray we compare ourselves to God and recognize we're sinners. What are we asking for? Therefore, we're asking for mercy from him. And what are we hoping for as we come with empty hands? Simply more of his grace. I hope we've seen today that self-confidence in a spiritual sense is something that turns our hearts away from God. In the Pharisee and the rich ruler, we see hearts dull to their own sin, their own need for God's mercy, to what God can give them, all because they're absorbed in their own status or their own stuff. But let's not go down that path. Let's, like the tax collector and the children, choose humility every day, recognizing that we are sinners in the sight of God, asking daily for his mercy, and then receiving afresh more than we can ask or imagine. Let me share with you one final story. It comes from the life of John Newton, the hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace, but I'm sure many of you know was in his former life a slave trader who witnessed uh, savagery, who indeed was a violent man himself. He came to Christ and over time knew he had to change his ways and he became ordained and served a very long ministry in the city of London uh, and continued to exercise that ministry even though his sight failed him. And uh, he was once visited by some of the next generation of evangelical leaders and he said to one of them, he said, there's only two things I know, he said that I am a great sinner, but I have a great saviour. Not I was a great sinner once, but I am a great sinner, but I have a great saviour. May that be true of us as we follow the path of the tax collector and children and say, I may be a great sinner, but I have a great saviour.